0: This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I are going to talk about a piece of little known, at least in some circles, history. We will tell you about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis.
1: Welcome to the Across the Peak Podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and, well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer, and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed-up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the f*** up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across
2: the peak man i'm excited to get into this um, uh the indianapolis is i think they've made a, a crappy movie about it i'd never saw it but uh what a, what a fascinating thing and i'm glad that we're finally kind of getting into the history because i've always wanted to do one of these and um and this was a book you read recently, man, and so you're going to be leading this thing, and I'm, I can't wait to get into it.
0: Yeah, I, I know you know a lot about this, man. Uh, I This story kind of captured my imagination for a few weeks, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I heard Dan Carlin do a podcast on it, and, and I'll tell the listener the truth. If you want to hear a better history podcast, you could probably go listen to Dan Carlin, but I, I heard him do a show on this. And I was like, my God, I have to read the book that he read. It was so gripping and so intense. And it was all I was able to think about for a couple of weeks there. And I I was bumping you on a couple of things like, hey, Rich, did you know this? And you already knew a lot of this stuff. So I was was pretty impressed by that. And um, I'm confident, despite the fact that you've not read this same book that I've read, that uh, you'll be able to hold your own here. So anyway, what are you drinking this week, man?
2: Well, uh, I've had a little bit of two things today. Um, Well... I'm going to tell you, tonight, all I've had thus far is got to get up to get down. Oh, fuck you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I knew it. We went to uh, the old good times, and uh, I Lisa's like, what do you want? I'm like, well, since we're here, got to get up to get down. Yeah. But uh, later, later, I will be enjoying some bourbon, and I'm going to have bakers. And the bottle of bakers I have is actually signed by baker beam um the originator of that and that's probably my favorite bourbon so best of both worlds
0: very nice man very nice i i man i am not having anything nearly so fancy tonight since kai and i have started brewing our own beer we have decided that uh well we we really like the look of a a case of beer in all different shapes and sizes and whatever of bottles so we we have been shopping largely based on bottles of cool or interesting or different shapes so uh, I, but actually this is beer i really like it's uh medelo negra or negra Medella. I, I i'm not sure how you're, which way you're supposed to say it um but this is actually a pretty solid little beer man
2: it, it is a very solid beer and uh, i think it's it's from mexico and it, it
0: sure is yeah uh tend to see this at, uh, at Mexican restaurants or whatever. And I actually like the Modelo Especial, the, the, the more of a clear Pilsner style beer, but this, uh, the Negra Modelo is, it's just much darker, much, uh, I guess maltier and maybe a little bit of more caramel notes in there. It's, it's a solid beer and I, I think, you know, where we're at, um, you know, your six pack of high-end beer might cost as much as, I don't know, twelve or thirteen dollars, and this is like an eight dollar six pack of beer. Or so um, I don't know why I haven't been drinking more of this.
2: Yeah, yeah, I actually love that beer, and uh, I've I've bought it and had it at home, not just at the Mexican restaurants, but uh, yeah, for a dark beer in Mexico, you would you wouldn't necessarily put those two things together, but man, it's a good one.
0: It sure is, man. It sure is. So uh, what would you do this week, man? You got some exciting stuff coming up.
2: Yeah, um, BJJ as uh, usual. And uh, I got a good submission from my coach, so I'm pretty pumped about that. And then um, I'm heading off tomorrow, flying out early in the morning to uh, do some uh, night hunting of coyotes with nods and and lasers and all kinds of shit, man. We're gonna, me and my buddy Mike, uh, we're gonna be up there in Wyoming. uh, out on four wheelers at night, trying to find coyotes. So it sounds pretty fun.
0: That's awesome, man. That sounds like a real good time.
2: Yeah, yeah. You'll have to. You'll have to go with us one day, bro.
0: I'd love to, brother. Believe me.
2: All right, cool. Consider yourself invited. So, what'd you do this week, man? Oh,
0: crap, dude. I, I don't have a single good thing to tell you, man. It. Uh, I've been getting my ass kicked at work. I've had the last week was crazy busy. I still managed to get in a couple of range sessions and whatever last week. Um, this week. Man, I, I haven't really done a whole lot at all. Probably the highlight of my week was, uh, you know, I pretty much leave here at before daylight in the morning and come dragging ass back after dark at night. But uh, last night, uh, I, I got a good friend. Uh, I, I can't really say who he is or what he does, and I'm sorry to be so vague. He'll know who he is. Uh, I got a real good friend that this is one of those friendships where he and I see each other uh Maybe every two years, but every time we do, we pick up right where we left off without a, even a hitch. Uh, great, great friend came up to the house last night, and uh, Kai and I were able to cook him dinner and make him a couple of drinks, and we we sat here until about eleven o'clock last night, just shooting the shit with him, man, and uh, really I felt really fortunate to get to hang out with him a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think that's a that is a true mark of a uh, in recruiting. We used to talk about. Uh, building rapport, and I always thought that rapport is something that needs to be watered and refreshed every time you uh, re-encounter somebody, but when you have a relationship with somebody, it's like, hey, man, you got the keys to my house. Like, if you wanted the keys, bro, I, w- I would throw them in the mail to you tomorrow if you wanted them, and you can come in anytime and this is your house. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, there's not very many people—I don't think, I don't think very many people— would have more than a handful of those people in their life, but uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a, a couple such people in my life, and um, that, that I, I totally know what you mean with that, man, and that is one of those things that doesn't need to be refreshed, doesn't need to be constantly worked on or whatever, um, you know, he's, he's been, uh, he have been pretty uh, out of, out of uh, daily contact for the past I don't know year year and a half of whatever time due to his work and being in some pretty remote austere type places and i don't know we'll exchange a text message or two every month or so and that's about it uh and to be honest over the last 10 years that's probably been a pretty frequent amount of communication for us and it like i say man every time it just picks up right where it left off so that's uh that's pretty cool if you don't have a friend like that uh the listener out there i would say maybe go try to make one
2: yeah totally and um and, and don't settle either in that in that pursuit because uh, you're going to encounter a, a you know a lot of uh, a lot of different things on your on your path to finding that person.
0: You know, you and I have talked about this before, but about doing an episode on how 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 do you know who you can trust? And I think that person that you can trust, like you said, with the example there of yeah, I'll throw my keys in the mail to you tonight, man um it, it probably goes a long way toward finding a friend and ascertaining who's going to truly be that friend um uh, i, I want to do that show sometime man i know we still i really need to put some thought into that cuz i don't really know what the answer is sometimes but
2: uh or, no and whatever, but. no no totally man and um uh, on the subject cuz we're kind of talking about journey and and all this kind of stuff to find that person there's a we don't have a poem of the week but maybe we should but there's a really good poem called Ithaca by C.P. Uh, Cavafy. And uh, there's actually a really good version where Sean Connery reads the the lines of the poem. And uh, it is an amazing poem. And I encourage uh, – maybe we'll put that in the show notes, man, because it's a good one.
0: I'm all about it, brother. Let's do it.
2: All right. And speaking of journeys, uh, I guess maybe that's a uh, – I could be Sally Segway right now, and that could be a good segue to get into the show. <laughs>
0: All right, well sounds good, Sally. Um All right, so we're talking about the USS Indianapolis. So if if the listener doesn't know, this is the worst at sea naval disaster in US history. This was almost an unfathomable unfathomable disaster, just the scope of which was almost impossible to even imagine during the peak of World War II. Um God, man, I, I can't get over how big and how crazy this thing is, and there's so many ironies in this thing. I think I referenced that on the a, a while back on the Todd Orr episode, but there are just so many ironies to this thing. Man, it happened just a couple of weeks before the end of World War II. It was the Japanese sub commander that that sank this boat. It was his very first kill. That he had gotten, it was the last major vessel sunk of the war. It just all these crazy little twists of fate, man.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of the um, the Sultana, um, and maybe we do a, an episode on it because it was a terrible disaster. It killed um, uh, roughly the equivalent of the same amount of people. We're going to talk about, and it is also an overlooked disaster because it occurred right after Lincoln was assassinated and the country was in turmoil. So, and I think similarly, as we will find out in this story, there was a reason why a lot of Americans don't know about it, even though, Justin, you're saying it was the worst at-sea naval disaster.
0: You're absolutely right. And that's because immediately prior to its sinking, the Indianapolis was on a, a, Secret Mission, the magnitude of which, if you don't know what it was, the magnitude of which is almost possible to imagine. So, um, basically, uh, and and before we get into this, Rich, let me just state that In Harm's Way, which was the book of the week several weeks ago, uh, In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton is the source material for everything I'm going to say here. I cannot recommend that book strongly enough if you have an interest in this, go read the book. If you if you think something I say is bullshit, go read the book. Um, th- that is the kind of one of the authoritative sources on this. There are a lot of books about the Indianapolis, but I can personally vouch for that one. Nice. So what the secret mission was, We I, I hinted at it and then I sidetracked there, is uh, the USS Indianapolis uh, on 16 July left San Francisco, left the port of San Francisco just hours before the Trinity test where the U.S. government detonated uh, atomic weapons in in what's one of the landmark, one of the very first atomic tests and one of the landmark atomic tests. They had no idea it happened. Um, but in, in one more of these coincidences, one more of these ironies, just hours after that test, and their orders were to take the atomic bomb and literally half of the world's uranium sp- supply to Tinian, where that would all be assembled into a working atomic weapon, which would be uh, dropped on Japan just a few weeks later.
2: Mm. Okay.
0: So uh, Captain McVeigh, uh, Captain Charles B. McVeigh III, the captain of the vessel, told his officers uh, just very shortly after they departed San Francisco that uh, he said, quote, every hour we save will shorten the war by that much, unquote. Uh, this was, like, the importance of this mission was impressed upon him heavily. They, uh, basically, they cleared an officer's stateroom that they um, put the uh, uranium in, and then they welded the container containing the, <clears throat> the uh, bomb onto the ships below decks and uh, put a, a armed guard on this thing around the clock and they had uh, they had a guard on the I'm pretty sure on the stateroom where they were housing that uranium, and they put uh, two army officers or two um, people that claimed to be army officers on that boat uh, who were actually uh, engineers involved in the design of the weapon and knew how to assemble it and all that stuff. But uh, those people were sailing with them, and uh, they took off really, really quickly, man. They arrived in Pearl Harbor in a record that still stands to this day in 74 and a half hours.:
2: Wow. That's amazing. Having like yeah, having been, I think you and I both have been on amphib ships and spent some time on that. And that, that's that's fast, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's just a tiny tiny bit over three days uh, to sail to Pearl Harbor from San Francisco. That is moving out,
2: man. Yeah.
0: So they got there every all the all the crew is uh is is shaving and polishing up their shoes to go out on libo. I'm sure you know how that is, yeah. uh, but uh, <laughs> But uh, Liberty was kanked, and the ship pulled out of port just five hours later, um, just five hours later, headed to Tenian to, to drop off the atomic bomb components and, and all the uh, U-235. Now, before we go on any further, uh, let's talk about the crew of this thing. There were 1,196 officers and crew aboard the Indianapolis. Um, unfortunately, I, this probably didn't help anything at all, but... Uh, about 250 of those sailors were right out of basic training. They were brand new and somewhere between 30 and 35, of those officers were brand new and had no prior actual Naval experience at all. So starting out with a fairly inexperienced crew overall, uh, which, which, like I say, probably, probably didn't help anything, did it?
2: No, but you know, you and I both know this, like right before a unit goes out and they're trying to pump the numbers up, you know, you, you, you're you're pulling in everybody you can from right out of the schoolhouse and all this other stuff. So a lot of times I know the first unit I went to, I got there from the school of infantry. I was there six weeks and we deployed. So, um, and you know, a lot of us were brand new. So I don't know that in the military that's too uncommon. I think as a civilian you might go, Holy crap, you know, they're they're really in trouble. But you got a lot of old salts on that boat, they're probably okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So
2: turns out they weren't, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <you know>.
0: um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just who who knows who knows what would have what would have happened anyway. I I, I mean, like once you're once you're in the situation once you're in the water, man. Um, I was talking about this with my friend uh, uh, that came over last night. You truly find out what the limits of of human endurance are. Um, you know, ev- everybody has to find that for themselves. Um, and yeah, it doesn't matter if you're brand new. Been on the boat for twenty years, man. It's it, it, everybody's got to grapple with that themselves, right?
2: That's right. That's right.
0: So uh, anyway, the uh, the Indy dropped off her uh, her cargo, uh, the atomic weapon and the and and the uranium, um, and from there was sent to Guam, where a, a number of crew that had completed their tours of duty got off the boat and were replaced by other sailors, and then she set sail from Guam. On 28 July, sailing toward Lady, which was about 650 miles away, it's about a 650 mile sail from Guam to Lady, and uh, so she took off. And there were there were a number of things, a number of failures here. So um, Intel was good. There were uh, three reported three reported subsidings, meaning ships, merchantmen or other military ships had reported seeing uh, submarines. Two of those were very thin, very um, maybe kind of unreliable reporting. And one of them was a week old. So they assessed that not to be uh, not to be really anything uh, to be all that concerned about. But one critical detail was missing, man. And that was uh, just four days before this on 24 July, the USS Under Underhill, had also been sunk on the Lady Route. And fortunately, the Underhill wasn't sailing alone, wasn't sailing unescorted as uh, as the Indianapolis would be, and managed to pull almost everyone out of the water, and, and that's great. Intel also missed uh, reporting that a Japanese submarine group was known to be operating in that area, and none of the stuff was was conveyed to Captain McVeigh, and that was because of... of Uh, classification basically we had broken the japanese codes and didn't want them to know that that we had broken their codes so no one told captain mcveigh that they knew there was a subgroup operating in that area which sucks
2: yeah it does suck and i want to circle back to something because when you talked about the uranium that they dropped off as i understand it that was like half of the world's supply of enriched uranium at that point am i is that right
0: it literally was half of the world's supply at that time.
2: Yeah, that's 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 insane. So, to to put that amount of you know our national resources, our national treasure, if you will, the fate of uh, millions of lives—if that would have failed—I mean, they obviously the navy had to have trusted uh, Captain McVeigh. To, to let him take that wouldn't you wouldn't you imagine uh,
0: yeah i I would man, and uh would have had to have placed a lot of stock in the in the boat itself and the and the man behind the helm,
2: but they don't want they don't want to give up the fact that they've cracked the code even this late in the war, which is kind of amazing, and they wouldn't tell them that, that I'm not shocked that the Intel was shoddy, but in this case, it wasn't that it was shoddy, it was intentionally and willfully denied a commander in harm's way. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing man
0: right and and before leaving tinian mcveigh had requested escorts typically a uh, so the uh, indianapolis was a portland class heavy cruiser and typically that would have been accompanied by you know one or two lighter destroyers that would you know be able to defend that big that very very big ship or if if a Excuse me. If a vessel in the fleet were sunk, be able to pull the people back out of the water, and he was denied that escort. How giving him an escort would have revealed to the Japanese that we had broken their codes. I don't know, but anyway, he was he was denied an escort.
2: Yeah, that, that that's terrible, right there, man. If you're going to do it, at least give them the means to to you know save themselves more or less. But anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um so anyway uh this this guy named in the book Captain Naquin. Um, Had some culpability there. He had access to that info, and it was basically, and this was classified ultra, basically it was his judgment call whether to pass that info to McVeigh or not. McVeigh, like you say, eminently trusted dude. Um, This dude, Captain Naquin, basically had, like, it was up to him. It was his judgment call whether he gave that out or not, and and he made the judgment uh, obviously not to. Oh, man. So to compound this further, uh, thanks to a miscommunication, uh, the the two people that McVeigh was supposed to report to when he arrived in um, when he arrived in Lady didn't know when to expect him, and as a result, they had no idea when he would be late. Uh, they roughly knew, but um, you know, as we'll see, man, that that wasn't good enough. That didn't answer the mail. Um, so uh, no, basically, nobody knew when he had, had missed his uh, his ETA and, and when to sound the alarm.
2: And, you know, we've talked talked about that five-point contingency plan, the GATWA, and if they would have had something as simple as something we would use on a patrol, you know, uh, the GATWA acronym, the, this probably wouldn't have happened or maybe not as many people would have perished, it, certainly.
0: Right. And, and like, I kind of get it, man. You're shuffling these massive big blue arrows around the map, Uh as as crappy as it sounds, it seems like it just got lost in the shuffle.
2: Yeah, maybe. But uh, was Captain McVeigh's uh, commanding officer was that Captain Naquin, or what is his role? Do you know?
0: I, I think he was the intelligence officer on uh, on um, uh, McVeigh reported to to the commander of that fleet, who. Um, God, Rich, I'm I'm gonna sound horrible for not knowing. Is it's a name that we all should recognize? It might have been Admiral Nimitz, as a matter of that fact. That makes
2: sense. All right. Uh,
0: who I think was McVeigh's direct report. So uh, anyhow, um, so McVeigh sets sail uh, without an escort and with intelligence intelligence that he didn't know was bad, and and he sailed according to the intel intel that he got. Um, So basically uh, McVeigh was given the discretion to zigzag during daylight hours and at night at his judgment when visibility is good because you got to remember this boat had just done a record setting haul ass movement to Pearl Harbor and then it had hauled ass to Tinian and McVeigh was kind of concerned about the basically the the state of the engines after having done this really really intense uh, voyage So, uh, zigzagging and heavy and very heavy seas, uh, obviously puts more strain on the engines and, and he's trying to preserve his vessel. Uh, so anyway, long story short, uh, on the evening of July 30th, let me, let me, let me check that Rich. Yeah. On the evening of July 30th, or actually the er, very, very early morning about, um, well, the evening of July 29th, he gave the order to stop zigzagging because visibility was very poor and... He said, all right, and basically that was his call to make. He made the uh, call to stop zigzagging, and he was explicitly permitted to do that at his discretion and during inclement weather and when swells were up to 12 feet high. So visibility that night was poor, so that's the call he made. Uh, Also, again, that call is probably largely based on not knowing that there was a Japanese subgroup operating in the very area that he's sailing through. Right. Yeah, totally. So another uh another decision that just massively exacerbated this is they were traveling in the yoke modified position. And uh Rich, have you ever been on ship? You have, right? Oh yeah. So uh yoke modified meaning means uh all the interior hatches are open and every everything's not battened down. Um and I'm sure you can tell the listener what problem that creates if there's some sort of uh uh disaster strikes.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, then, you know, the, the integrity of the ship is compromised because as water starts to fill in, there's nothing to stop it from one one part of the ship to the other. That's why a lot of times, you know, going down a passageway on a ship, uh, you know, you're uh, with a dog in the hat, hatches, you know, open up the hatch, walk through, go to the other side, dog it back down, walk another 10 feet, open up another one. It's a pain in the ass, I can tell you that, but... But if you're in a dangerous place, that's what you got to do, man.
0: Right, man. If you if you have all those discrete areas sealed up, you can you can take a pretty good hit in one area, and it won't it, it's not going to fill the rest of the ship with water. But anyway, that's the position that they were traveling in. And uh, Commander Hashimoto uh, was a Japanese submarine commander. He commanded I fifty eight, and he had uh, this guy had been at sea for four years. He had never sunk a ship. And he was um, like this was his just his lucky day if if you want to put it that way man. Um, here here comes the Indianapolis. Uh, it's not zigzagging. Which, quick point on that. He he later was flown to the United States to testify in McVeigh's trial and testified that zigzagging wouldn't have mattered anyway.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get to that here in a little bit. But I tell you that that is a absolutely despicable thing to do in my opinion.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. The court
2: martial in and of itself is is, is a, a grotesque carriage of misjustice, and to, but to bring in the the guy that sank his ship is uh, almost inexcusable. Whoever made that call,
0: yeah. I, I I don't know, man. um I mean, that would be a person with firsthand information. I, like, I don't know how I look at that.
2: Well, to um, me, it's it's finger pointing and blame shifting. You know what I'm saying?
0: I don't know. I think it'd be a little bit different than bringing in like an Iraqi insurgent because, you know, the the Japanese army was very, you know, very honor driven and very, uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like, I feel like there was some honor among thieves in that Mm -hmm. uh, situation. Yeah, maybe. You know what I mean? And, and I will also say that uh, the Hashimoto years later met, uh, like met with the Indianapolis survivors at Pearl Harbor um, and he uh, he was was p- uh, part of a very extensive letter writing campaign to get McVeigh's really? name cleared.
2: I but I um, did not know that. Yeah,
0: sure was. He actually died just I want to say just about a week before McVeigh was actually huh. cleared. So anyway, we're we're on a big sidetrack. Anyway, this guy um, this guy saw the Indianapolis and it uh, he launched um, I want to say six torpedoes. Two of which hit, and man, that like a significant portion of the uh, the fore of the ship was just sh- was basically sheared off. And you got to remember, all these hatches are open throughout the vessel, and this thing is moving at a at a fairly significant speed. I'm not going to quote the speed, but y- you don't move something that heavy. At really any speed and stop it on a dime, so the front of this vessel gets ripped off it's wide open to the sea it's still plowing ahead at you know several knots an hour for several minutes after uh after it was hit, which means it's it basically just turns into a giant scoop for water. Mm-hmm. So uh, so anyway, the uh, McVeigh McVeigh reports testifying that he um, he could not fathom why the ship why things were going so badly so quickly, but his vessel had taken an absolutely catastrophic hit. Uh, unlike you know uh, unlike almost anything we've we've ever seen, uh, so it was only eight minutes. And you got to remember what he's grappling with. Think about what he's up against here. Do you want to be the captain that comes back and says, yeah, I gave the order to uh, to abandon my ship and have to answer the question of like, well, could this multi-billion dollar ship have possibly been saved? Did you make that call too soon? That's, that's a tough call to make, man.
2: It is a tough call to make, but <clears throat> I think I read somewhere or I remember hearing it that because of the nature of their initial mission, they were carrying... Uh, perhaps more armament than they normally would have, and they had some additional things welded above decks that made the ship uh, really top heavy. And I don't know. Did, did you encounter anything that like that in the reading?
0: No, I, I didn't. I didn't see anything of that nature, man. Yeah, not not saying it's it's not the case, but yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't run into anything indicating there was the ship had any uh, any extensive load of extra. Uh, Anything?
2: Yeah, I think as the war progressed, they continually added more on as they saw what it was happening, and you know that I don't know if if if, uh, Captain McVeigh was aware of how the ship would react if it was struck, because as like you said, it was going down quicker than probably he was accustomed or that he calculated it should have gone down. So you got two things working against you: you got additional added armament based on the scope of the mission, you've got. Uh, you know the, the hatches aren't griped down, so water is just pouring through the vessel. You've been struck not once but twice. I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on.
0: Yeah, you sure do. So it, it was no more than eight minutes after that that he that he gave the order to abandon ship. And man, this is where I would encourage the listener to read this book. Man, just the uh, just the sheer mayhem and chaos that's going on aboard this boat. And you got to remember. Um, every, everybody's not fine. There are people with, you know, burns all over their body, people with broken limbs, people, missing limbs, people in various states of disrepair. Um, and you know, petty officers on the decks trying to keep order and young officers on the deck trying to keep order. And this deck begins to list more and more and more to the point that people are jumping off, and it's about an 80-foot drop. When, when McVay gives the order, it's about an 80-foot drop off the fantail into the water. And the list is so severe that people are actually hitting the, uh, the propellers, which are still turning it at, at full tilt. And, man, he talks about people falling off onto these propellers and getting launched, you know, hundreds of feet in another direction. Just absolutely insane, man.
2: Ooh, that's, ooh, I hadn't thought about that.
0: Yeah, so, um, so anyway, uh, there was a small note of good fortune here. When they got to Pearl Harbor, they had to basically haul some strap hangers, uh, down to Tinian, and they picked up, uh, an order of life vests that had actually been doubled. So they had life vests friggin' everywhere, man, stuffed in every available, uh, crevice on that boat. So there were plenty of, well, I won't say plenty, there were a bunch of life vests, um, Unfortunately, there were 35 life boats on board, but only about a dozen of those made it into the water. And these things were all supposed to be provisioned with these wooden casks of water and food and uh, some, you know, some survival gear. Very, very few of those had actually been provisioned and, and the ones that had the water had not, in those wooden barrels had not been changed in so long that it was just unfit to drink. Uh, and, and they ended up pouring it, you know, just pouring it in the sea because it was no good. Um, so we're starting off in a bad situation here, man. People, people are just mangled. Um, we've got, you know, 12 out of 35 boats in the water with almost no survival gear. And uh, it's at night. We've, we've just been shot down. People don't know what the hell has happened, really. They don't know if they've hit a depth charge. They don't know. They don't really know what's happened. And you've got all these survivors in the water. Uh, about 900 of them. About 300 people went down with the boat, so you end up with about 900 survivors in the water, and they all kind of end up in uh, in about three groups, which which we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But um, before the boat went down, they actually managed to get a mayday call out.
2: Well, before we talk about that, what's interesting is I didn't consider the issue with the lifeboats that probably back then uh, with naval architecture they would have. The, the lifeboats maybe would have been bolted down and you, the the thought maybe was, oh, we will have plenty of time to put the lifeboats out. Well, nowadays, the modern ships, as I understand it, uh, they're on the exterior and the sides of the ship, so that when the ship goes down, they break off. And then uh, uh, um, I guess there's at some point they, they're so saturated with seawater that they just start popping open, even if they're not uh, deployed. So, they probably learned the the lessons the hard way based on what happened to these guys.
0: Yeah, and and you know even even with that idea, I don't know how many of those boats would actually end up being service like uh, this. You know, I think the tendency of of imagining a ship going down, it's it's kind of imagined as a fairly orderly affair, and it just like slowly slipping under the water. This seemed like a an incredibly violent affair, and it was uh, no more than twelve minutes after this thing had been struck that it was. Uh, On its way to the bottom.
2: Yeah, I mean, anybody that saw the movie Titanic, you're thinking, oh, we got, you know, they got plenty of time. They got up to an hour. Now, these guys were, like you said, and if you haven't been on ship, if your job has you deep in the bowels of the ship, you're not even going to know the dire straits that you're in because you're too busy doing your job, fighting to keep the ship afloat. And so within, like you said, within what, eight minutes, uh, it was almost under, it flips over and is under the water in 12. I mean, it's.
0: And that's one of the horrors of this story is some of those guys, um, well, when the ship starts sinking, they go into damage control mode, right? Every, basically every officer, every crew member on that vessel has uh, their primary job as a radar tech or a you know what a gunner or whatever but everybody has a damage control position if the ship's hit hey i go to this place i lock this down i do that i do the other i put out this you know fires in this area and people are all trying to do their damage control jobs and some of these hatches have to be locked down and some of these compartments are already taken on water and you're you know you're locking men in into their graves uh into a watery oh, yeah. grave man and that's uh, uh I I can't even imagine the horror of that, man, Uh, on either side.
2: No, and um, I was on the USS Trenton one time, and um, my birthing area had a small hatch that, um, you know, back then it was hard to get in and out of. And I, I weighed 160 pounds back then, but that was it. And it was going down a ladder way to get into the birthing area. And climbing out of the ladderway way to get out of there, and that was only one escape way and and you know we pretty much knew if this thing starts taking on water they're they're shutting that thing, and we're on our own, which so it, yeah it's um it's terrifying if you uh live on that ship and think about what might happen like these not like these men faced
0: yeah, and those ships are labyrinthine affairs man if you're a couple layers below deck, like finding your way out is not just a simple. Oh, I followed the lighted pathway <laughs> to the to the lighted exit sign, and i'm good man it's it's it, under the best of conditions if you don't know your way around really well, it can be hard to find your way out of some of those places
2: well, and I don't know if you're uh when you were on the boat, if your commander did this, but we would- you know they would blindfold us and we'd have to try to find our way out of our berthing and stuff like that, and people screwing with you and it was It was good training, and probably should have done more of that, but uh we did it a couple times. And uh, yeah, because you only have, you know, maybe a minute or two. And like these guys found eight minutes is all they had.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, man, it's an intense. I'll I'll tell you, I'm going to sidetrack. The scariest thing I ever experienced on ship was we were on a reverse schedule. So we would sleep all day. And then at night, we'd basically go out on the elevator and shoot and work out and whatever. And um, it, it was, I don't know, like one in the afternoon, one day, we're all in the rack just you know, it lights out in our birthing area and the one MC comes on and, uh, I just wake up just in time to hear like Iranian missile inbound brace for impact. And I was like, Oh shit, here, like what's going on. And it turns out it was an exercise, but, uh, I had slept through all the previous announcements (laughs) letting us know it was an exercise. So,
2: well, I'm going to tell you, and I don't know if I told you this in 1992, when I was with a uh, 26MU, we were doing a med float, and we had the Turkish uh, were on we're on our ship, and we were going to do this big amphibious exercise with them. And somebody did not get the word out. Um, well, let me tell you how I found out. So the next morning, they're like, hey, the, the ops canceled. And we were used to seeing all these Turkish guys eating chow with us. I'm like, there's no Turkish guys there. And somebody's like, yeah, you didn't hear? We attacked their ship last night. I'm like, what do you mean? I said, yeah, they, they fired a—the U.S. fired a missile and struck the commander of the Turkish fleet, hit him right in the bridge, killed him and all of his officers because somebody didn't tell the firing battery that it was just a drill, and they shot the missile anyway. And, and uh, you know, so the the, the uh, Turkish were hiding in their stateroom because they thought that we had were really going to war with them once they knew that their guys had, had really been shot.
0: Oh, gotcha wow
2: did you ever hear about that i did not yeah that was nuts man
0: God, it sounds like it uh,
2: yeah, anyway i'll, I'll to put that in the show um, notes <laughs>
0: man that is that is crazy
2: i'll put it in the notes
0: so uh so yeah pushing on where we're all right so the the ship sinks in 12 minutes but they do manage to get a message out and i think this is probably one of the bigger lessons learned of this whole book so uh on lady which is 650 miles away claire b young uh who's i i've Forgive me for not knowing uh, the rank and rate, uh, but Claire B. Young received their mayday, and she took that to um, Commodore Jacob Jacobson. And Jacobson said, quote, No reply at this time. If any further messages are received, notify me at that time. And nothing further was received. He took no further action on it. And, um, like, God, man, like... (laughs) that one person could have made a different, you know, that one commander could have made a different Commodore could have made a difference. Um, uh, I I think the implication was that he was afraid it was a bruise by the Japanese to get him out there. Uh, So a second message was also received by someone else on lady uh, who took it to his or her commander. I, I don't forgive me for not knowing the name of this individual, but they took it to Commodore Gillette who had taken a boat over to another island and was playing bridge. So, Before uh, this person dispatched the message, they dispatched two tugs out to the coordinates that the U.S. Indianapolis had reported. By the time uh, Gillette got back the next morning from playing bridge and found out that these boats had been dispatched without his consent, they were almost halfway to the site of the Indianapolis' sinking, uh, but he ordered them back and took no further action, no further investigation after that. He was just pissed that somebody made a decision in his absence. Um... And then, uh, finally, this message was received by a third party, uh, some guys aboard a landing craft in Lady Harbor, who forwarded that up to their hire, uh, but that message was also ignored.
2: You know, I, I, and I might be reaching here, but it almost sounds like the bystander effect in some way, you know, it's like— and eh, maybe you know that's, if it's something real, somebody else will do something about it. M- maybe I'm wrong, but you know, I'm I'm almost smelling a little of that going on here.
0: Yeah, this is, dude. This is absolutely terrible. Minutes after this happened, people know about it, and no one does anything about it. And you know, put put yourself as that guy in the water, uh, just holding on to the hope that 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 message has gotten out, or you know, surely a ship is going to you know cruise through here any day now, or a planes are going to fly over, or uh, or whatever, um, but that's I, I I think that's a good I think that's a good takeaway from the story, man. If you're that radio operator and you take this to your commander and it is not actioned, um, y- you know, being a being a commander, being the CEO of your company, being the person in charge doesn't imbue you with any additional intelligence or uh, you know maybe a little bit more insight, but it, it certainly doesn't mean you're perfect. And those people make mistakes too and uh, at least three people made big fucking mistakes here, man, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to cast any blame on, on any of these radio operators and whatnot that pass these messages up, but it, it could probably have been done better, right?
2: Oh, 100%. And I wouldn't want to be that guy that has to live with the, the thought of, you know, what could have, what could have been, but—and I'm— you know nowadays we have a lot of decentralized command and control so that people can act, and you don't have to bother the commodore while he's um, petting his stallions or whatever the hell those people do but <laughs> but you know it's like right. it's like hey man, get out there and do what you can do to save people
0: yeah yeah absolutely man and and I believe there was even uh, i forgive me, I get a little sketchy on the details here, rich I think there was a you know, some sailors that were responsible for uh, assigning the slips in the port there that noticed that the Indy wasn't there, uh, you know, a, about a day after it was supposed to be there, and uh, that slip had been allocated for it, and it didn't show up, and uh, maybe he said some something to somebody, and you know, not really his satisfaction, but, you know, just kind of like, well, I passed the message, so that's all I can do kind of thing. And again, man, I, I wasn't there. I'm not trying to armchair quarter pack this. I'm not trying to, you know, but for the listener, if you're that guy that's that's noticing that ship's not supposed to be there and it's not, let everybody fucking know know about it.
2: Yeah, and uh, one more funny story about being on a naval ship. I remember every time we'd go into harbor like uh you know, they'd come over the one MC you know the the loud whistle and they'd say, if anybody speaks Greek, uh, come up to the quarter deck. So everybody's looking at each other you know fifteen minutes goes by. now seriously, uh, we need someone to speak Greek. We've got the pilot boat here and they don't speak English, and we can't go into port until somebody gets their ass up here. you know then about an hour later, look, if you were in a Greek fraternity and you have any you know command of the Greek language, we need you up here. And it seemed like every time we'd port, it would be French if you speak uh, whatever language, you name it. And I'm like, man, we're, this is really the, how, how it is? God, <laughs> what a mess. I would have never guessed that.
0: Right. You think they'd be a little more squared away than that, huh?
2: Yeah, not so much.
0: Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. All right, man, where are we at? So it's, uh, it's about 1215, 1230 on the night of July 30th, 1945.
2: Uh and they're in the water. The
0: United States the USS Indianapolis has just been sunk. It's uh, uh we w- we won't know this until years later, but it's sitting about a mile under the surface of the ocean. And we've got about 900 sailors in the water uh desperately trying to survive. And so uh it wasn't very long after that and and man there is a number of killers going on here. Um I think the I think the first night, um, you know, maybe was maybe was not that bad. The first night was maybe, uh, I guess, somewhat tolerable. Uh, you know, Stanton Stanton mentions there's almost this sense of kind of giddiness at having survived the ship being sunk and you're alive and you know here we are, we're we're all together. Um, but that didn't last for very long. So, um, specifically, well, I, I mean. There was never really a great respite from it. But specifically at dawn and dark, there were um, would start to be shark attacks, which would become very, very common. And this is probably what the Indianapolis is most known for, um, just these massive concentrations of oceanic white tips and tiger sharks just attacking these people absolutely en masse, man. And it is, it is insane. Um, as a matter of fact, the character Quint, the fisherman from Jaws, Um, is a you know his character is an Indianapolis survivor and that's revealed uh, when they're out on the out on the boat drinking that night and and he gives a uh, actually want to give the dude credit man want to give Robert Shaw some credit he ad-libbed that line he was later given given a writing credit for that movie for ad-libbing that line but his facts are pretty much spot on man
2: yeah and I tell you I I can't imagine getting into the water without some some way injuring yourself whether it's from the fall or uh during the you know the the chaos before the ship went down I can't imagine you know you, you mentioned the giddiness and I'm thinking if you made it all the way to the water you're probably in some way you know you're not at 100% physically right out of the gate
0: No so boy People had all manner of energy I- injuries, and, and a lot of people succumb to their... In- I don't know why I can't talk. <laughs> a lot of people succumbed to their injuries uh, shortly after being cast into the sea. Um, but, I mean, imagine trying to swim with a broken arm or tread water with a broken leg, or, uh, you know, they're talking about guys whose eyeballs are, are horribly burned, and you're coming into the water on a... Uh, on a slick of oil that, that people are just absolutely covered with, and they talked about that being a blessing the next day uh, because you know people that were coated in this thick, thick oil residue weren't at least weren't sunburned. But it's in your eyes, you're aspirating some of it, you're swallowing it. People are vomiting. Um, in addition to these excruciating injuries, uh, so so there's man, there's there's nothing good about this situation.
2: No, not at all. So we've got injuries. What, what else we got? We've got sharks. You mentioned that we got, what else are they, are they contending with?
0: Yeah. So we've got sharks and, and I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think we've mentioned this, but these guys weren't spotted until three and a half days later, uh, by an air, by an airplane, uh, a, a reconnaissance aircraft flown by Lieutenant Gwen and his co-pilot Lieutenant, uh, Caldwell. Um, and, you know, I'll go ahead and cut to the chase here. These these guys were given orders not to land, uh, but they made the decision in the air. They were going to land their aircraft on the surface of the ocean and start pulling people out of the water. So uh, Gwen said as he flew over, and this is also in, in Stanton's books, Gwen said as he flew over, he just happened to fly over in time to look down and see uh, a pack of hundreds of animals, hundreds of sharks attack and kill a group of uh, 50 or 60 people on a floater net, just this massive, massive attack. And he's like, we, we've we got to do something. We've got to get, we get these guys out of the water. So long story short, some of these people were in the water as much as four days. It took a long time to rescue these people. This plane landed. They pulled, his, I think, about 60-something people out of the water. They had them tied to the wings. They had them everywhere they could get them. But you've still got hundreds of people in the water. Yeah. So uh, over the period of four and a half days, four days, three and a half days, whatever, whatever the case might have been for any given individual, um, you're also dealing with hypothermia because we're in the South Pacific where it's, it's warm. The days were blisteringly hot. People had horrible, horrible sunburns. But the water temperature is only about 85 degrees, which is about 10 degrees below body temperature. So um, basically, you're losing about one degree of body heat every hour. Uh, especially at night when the sun goes down and you're getting no external heat, so you're l- quite literally freezing to death. Uh, the sun comes back up and it'll warm you up, but you're never going to get back to like a fully healthy body temperature.
2: Yeah, and I imagine if you're, you know, you're going to have to stay moving just to keep your body temperature up, and if you're going hypothermic, you're probably going to start making some bad decisions that i think led to um some of the other deaths right
0: yeah absolutely man so uh yeah we've got we've got guys that are uh drowning um we've got guys that are man yeah there was this is terrible and this is one of the most gripping i'm going to read this line from the book this is one of the most gripping lines I, I can imagine, Rich. So uh, Dr. Haynes was a doctor that went down with the boat, managed to stay alive. Um, and he, uh, for almost the entire time, him and a Marine captain spent almost the entire, uh, the, the Marine died, I and forgive me for not knowing his name, and forgive me for not being able to definitively say Dr. Haynes's outcome, but um, they swam around for almost the entire time just trying to take care of whatever they could, keep morale up. Uh, do anything they could. Absolute heroes, man. But um, the temptation to drink seawater was uh, absolutely overwhelming. So uh, Stanton lists this quote. After hours of resisting the temptation, they drank furtively at first as if ashamed. Then they began to gorge themselves, murmuring in pleasure as they sipped through bleeding lips from the cool mirror of the sea. Dr. Haynes looked on in horror, his worst fear realized. Soon these boys would all be dead. He swam among them, screaming and punching at their faces, but his pleased to stop were ignored. The boys lifted their dripping chins, regarded him coolly with glazed expression with glazed eyes then lowered their jaws back to the waiting sea finally the exasperated doctor realized he could do nothing but float and watch and steal himself for the coming physiological apocalypse and this is apparently an absolutely horrific death um it actually caused your cells to rupture and and just god man terrible terrible death
2: oh yeah Uh, So
0: there's a a ton of suicide. Uh, Some people uh, reportedly would just say, yeah, I'm done and uh, just stop swimming, stop paddling and slip below the sea and be gone. Uh, Some people would swim away from the group. Uh, The sharks tended to kind of eat at the edges. So if you're on the outside of a big group of guys, uh, you're more likely to get picked off than someone in the middle. Uh, And some guys would just, uh, this is also a very vivid description that Stanton gives, Swim off from the group and then, you know, he's I'm not going to quote him, but he said something like you would see this look of, you know, terrified satisfaction when the shark hit them and lifted them up out of the water. Um, uh, and also, sadly, uh, people were killing each other in the water, man.
2: What what do you mean?
0: Uh, people were actually. Uh, so we've we've got this state of severe dehydration, the state of almost unfathomable mental stress and duress. Uh, plus, you know, added to some hypothermia added to the horrors of sharks uh, constantly coming at you. And, uh, people basically lost their mental faculties, man. And, and you would get some guy in the group screaming, he's a Jap, he's coming to get me. And, uh, you know, they would start piling on each other, trying to drown each other. And, uh, there was reportedly, there was one melee that saw about 50 people killed,
2: man. Holy cow. Now that I did not know.
0: And, isn't that man isn't that terrible that
2: that's just, that's unbelievable i'm going to have to that's going to haunt me tonight i'm going to have to read up on that man cuz i i'm pretty familiar with everything you've covered so far but that one um absolutely not <clears throat> and in that book um talking about death by seawater i think there's uh, some of that in the book deep survival and uh you know you just start going absolutely mad as that salt builds up in your body and just destroys you from the inside out man that's oh what a terrible way to go
0: and and uh, apparently that was also a methodology for committing suicide drink seawater swim out let the sharks get you just drown and um you know that, that's what i say about reaching the true limits of endurance and kai has mentioned this several times who would i be who would i be in that situation and there's no way to know until you're in it and and you know, fortunately, most of us will never have to find out who we would be in that situation, but um, but man, you you, you never know.
2: No, you have, you don't know until you're until you're in it. I'd like to hope I I wasn't one of those, but and I hope I never find out. Yeah,
0: yeah, same man. Um, so yeah, so uh, Lieutenant Gwen uh, sees these guys, lands his plane, makes the radio call back, and. This is the craziest thing to me, Rich. This guy's landed. He's pulled some sixty people out of the water. He's got them tied to the wings of his aircraft. Got them like laid out like cordwood in his aircraft, as many as people as he can possibly get on there. And there are still people in the water being eaten by sharks, man. There's still people drowning. There's still people um, th- that don't make it, man. And that's uh, <laughs> that's like part of the craziest. For rescue to be that close, you know?
2: Well, yeah, the same thing. I mean, this entire event, they delivered the bomb components, the bombs are dropped, and the war is essentially over. So, you know, this whole thing should have never happened. You know what I mean? I mean, these men should not have died. The war was over. They just didn't know it yet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I got to backtrack a little bit, Rich. I said something wrong. Lieutenant Gwen was not in in an amphibious aircraft. He did not land his aircraft on the water. The next uh, aircraft to arrive was a uh, Catalina flown by Lieutenant Commander Marks. Uh, his plane was actually the plane that landed uh gwen did drop a life raft and a radio transmitter to those guys but i just wanted to just wanted to clear the record on that man i was a little bit off on my on my facts on that
2: okay so now we got the planes landing the amphib It's taking people on board getting them out of there what's what happens next
0: so after that uh the uss cecil j doyle uh is one of seven rescue ships to come up using its searchlight and uh most of the remaining survivors are picked up. And as I'd mentioned, they broke into three groups. There was one group that held the preponderance of everybody. There was a very small group of just a few men with Captain McVeigh himself. And then there was a uh, a third group. And these things were all, these groups were all separated, by, I think by more than, more than a mile uh, away from each other. Uh, but anyway, somehow... All three of those groups of people were uh, were found and and ultimately rescued. And I think the the final toll on this is about 360 people out of a 1,200 almost 1,200 person crew actually made it out of the water. Damn. And you know, Dan. Well, one thing Dan Carlin said is, imagine how many of those people wake up in the night with their beds sinking under them. Uh, I, I, I mean, man, do you? Do you ever really recover from something like this? No, no, you don't. And just having haven't seen the things you've seen and made the decisions you've made, and it's it's unreal, man.
2: Yeah, I can't, uh, I can't fathom that, bro.
0: Yeah. So anyway, uh, aftermath, uh, M- McVeigh uh, was court-martialed. His court-martial was was seen to be fairly inconclusive. So I, I want to point out that hundreds of vessels were lost during World War II, and Uh, Charles Butler McVeigh III was the only captain of a vessel that was, um, that was court-martialed for losing his vessel.
2: Well, that's what I was talking about. You know, it goes back to the, the ass method of shifting blame, you know, act surprised, then shift blame. And I forget the, the, the second S, but yeah, I mean, um, this is a lot of, uh, I mean, why else would they do it? I mean, I get it. You got the incredible large number of loss of life, but why go after this one guy when it seems like there's more than enough blame to go around in this incident?
0: Right, and uh, you know, it wouldn't be until until years later that um, when when records were declassified that we found out that these SOS messages actually got through. But uh, McVeigh was basically accused of not zigzagging when that had been basically at his discretion, whether or not the zigzag or not. And uh, the, the uh, court-martial was convened by Secretary of the Navy Forrestal, and uh, Admiral, admiral Nimitz, man, I'm not going to go into this too much. I get a little bit sketchy on this, but he was allowed to continue his, his career. Uh, he rose to the rank, he, he basically rose to the rank of 07 to a uh, rear admiral, and that's as far as he go, he went, and that was basically, uh, I forget the terminology they used, but basically a sympathy promotion, and he was kind of pushed out of the Navy, uh, or, or chose to go ahead and retire after that.
2: Yeah, that was a, a custom back then. You got a rank upon retirement. Uh, of course, that's long since gone away. But yeah, that was that was something they did back in those days.
0: Yeah, um, one of the most heartbreaking things, man, is is for the rest of his life, uh, McVeigh would received christmas cards from uh sailors who had been on the on the uss indianapolis and you know they'd say something like you know merry christmas ours would be a lot merrier if uh, our son wasn't dead and um this guy was tormented by this for the rest of his life man
2: yeah and ultimately uh, what was the outcome of, of uh captain mcveigh
0: well as you know uh, on november 6 1968 uh mcveigh took his life he shot himself with his uh his navy service pistol and this is a detail that that you actually knew ahead of time uh he he uh he killed himself in his home holding uh, in one hand a toy sailor that he had been given as a boy as a good luck charm
2: yeah i think that's a haunting little piece of uh of history right there not just the suicide itself but the fact that he's got this toy s- sailor and this is a guy that like i said you know lived an honorable life uh you know tragedy befell him and i think he acted honorably and uh, but you know the demons never would let him be and obviously the families that that treated him that way
0: yeah. probably had a lot and to do
2: with it as well
0: fortunately they're they i i guess at least in mcveigh's case so somewhat of a happy outcome uh the the survivors organized and kind of sadly to me man even though it was, even though the survivors organized. And attempted for years to clear his name. This wouldn't happen until 2001, until July 2001, when he was when his official Navy record was actually cleared of of any misconduct or wrongdoing in this affair. And do you want to tell him what the impetus for that was?
2: As I recall, there was a sixth grade boy who. Um... He had to do something for—it was a a project in his school or something. And um, and once he the kids started learning about it, what, what was his name, Justin? Do you have that written down?
0: Yeah, his name was uh, Hunter Scott.
2: Yeah, so he, he gets the ball rolling once he—I guess this child recognizes the, a miscarriage of justice, and he goes and talks to his congressman or something. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so he goes and talks to Joe Scarborough, who was uh, at the time Republican— as he's a representative uh, for, that, uh, for Scott's district in Florida. Uh, and actually, uh, Scarborough succeeded in getting a congressional investigation opened into this. Um, and in October 2000, the Congress passed a resolution that his record uh, basically state that he's exonerated uh, for the loss of the Indianapolis, uh, which was signed by President Clinton. And then um, finally... You know, in July of 2001, finally, the Secretary of the Navy actually cleared his Navy record. And, you know, I think there's a big takeaway here, don't you?
2: Well, I do. What What do you think? I'll, let's hear yours first.
0: Well, I, you know, not to get too—not to make this, like, too after-school specialty or whatever, but, like, this was a sixth-grade kid that basically moved a mountain here, man. Like, basically— Got the government to recant on something that you know a, a position that it had held since 1945, which is pretty fucking unbelievable in and of itself. And and by the way, Hunter Scott is, I believe, in the Navy now. Still, I think he's a commander, lieutenant commander. Anyhow, uh, this sixth grade kid succeeded in making something like this happen, man. And uh, you know, if you um, if you put your mind to something, you can probably get it done.
2: Yeah, but I'll tell you though the. The freaking military, dude, is its own little enclave, and it's not going to do what it doesn't want to do. So the fact that a sixth grader got this ball rolling and like uh, Sisyphus pushing it up a mountain and watching it roll down for eternity, I'm sure, because this had to have taken many pushes to get this thing up up that hill. And my hat's off to uh, uh, Hunter Scott, wherever you are, if you're commander now, God bless you. You know, I I've, I find this amazing that he was able to get that done. Absolutely amazing.
0: And you know who who knows if they're uh, if they're gilding this this story a little bit. And uh, I, I'm sure there's a little more to it than just this kid like out of the blue calling his congressman, and then all of a sudden shit happens, shit gets done. But 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 anyway, like as I understand it, that was the impetus. That was the you know this little boy calling that to the right person's attention. You know, again, man. Like I guess, kind of the same thing. with The people that receive those radio messages, man. If you, if you're the person that holds that information, uh, don't assume the history books closed. Don't assume that everybody already knows about it. Well, even make some shit happen, man.
2: Even uh Mark Bowen, when he wrote that book Black Hawk Down, he was, you know, he was interested in it, and the army had just kind of let it go as just a kind of a one-off battle that they didn't even uh care anything about, you know. And uh, I think those. 18 soldiers lost or whatever and he ultimately uh you know kept digging kept digging got the permission and ended up writing a book about it but had he not done that that would we wouldn't know anything about the battle of black sea or black hawk down whatever you want to call it but so it does take these people and oftentimes they're they're outside the military chain of command that can make this kind of stuff happen
0: yeah absolutely man outside of that uh group think mentality
2: yeah totally so is the case closed on the Indianapolis now that they've exonerated uh, Captain McVeigh, or is there anything else going on with this these days?
0: I think for the most part, man, I and and I think that's pretty much about all we've got on this. I, I mean, we could obviously go into a hundred times more detail, and I encourage the listener to go buy this book, man. There will definitely be links to this uh, in, the, in the show notes. It is a phenomenal tale, man, and, well, I guess we did this because we— like you and I both really, really enjoy history and, you know, want to share a little bit of, especially this lesser known history with the listener. But, uh, man, go read the damn book because we're not the replacement for it.
2: No, and I would say, just before we get into the, uh, you know, you'll obviously address the book of the week and stuff, but I want to say to me, this is also about all the unsung heroes out there, the men that died in the water, maybe uh, trying to take care of their buddies or what have you, because um when we were coming back one time we were cr- doing the crossing land back that the deployment was over we'd been away from our families for seven months and here we are we're maybe a day um uh, off the coast of north carolina and uh a navy guy gets hit hit in the head by a rotor blade and you know gets the top of his head taken off and on the sh- same ship i was on and I just remember that, you know, like, man, we were so close to it being over, and this poor guy gets killed. And this, this happens, as you know, Justin, every single day, not just in combat, but in peacetime accidents, these kind of things happen. And th- thank God, you know, we have these brave men and women out there that, that do this kind of stuff for us, man. So God bless them.
0: Yeah, absolutely, brother.
2: That's all I got, man, if you want to take us out.
0: Okay, man. Um, let's talk about the book of the week real quick.
2: All right, what is it? <laughs>
0: well, I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go on the lighter side this week, man. We've been talking about a heavy, heavy topic, uh, so I'm gonna go with something a little bit lighter, and I'm gonna talk about a book called "A Year of Living Biblically" by A.J. Jacobs, and uh, this is a pretty lighthearted uh, look at a guy that spends a year trying to follow every single rule uh, in the Bible, and he obviously runs into uh, Obviously, runs into some pretty big problems. But uh, if you're if you're uh, interested in religion at all, if you're interested in like kind of the nature of how we interpret ancient books or holy books, um, and kind of interested in learning some facts that I bet you probably don't know about the Bible, for example, the fact that uh, we're not supposed to wear any clothing that's made out of mixed fabrics. Uh, everything we wear is supposed to be 100% one thing or another. Um, you will definitely learn some stuff and this is just a fun little uh lighthearted book to uh, uh maybe lift your spirits after this episode
2: yeah i had never heard of that book man i will definitely check it out because i am very uh, aware of the uh strange levitical laws that are that are out there and still on the books if you want to look at it that way but uh that that will be a, an interesting read man i'm, yeah, I'm going to check that out
0: it's a fun little book man it's uh it's not bad
2: All right. Anything else, Justin?
0: I think that's it, brother. You want to take us out?
2: Sure. Hey, guys and gals. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Across the Peak, um, the podcast where we help you to be more confident, more competent, and more dangerous all at once. Hey, check out the uh, Instagram page that Commando has put together, dude, and give us a like and a follow. Also, I would like to tell you to check out the show notes, not just for this amazing show, but all the other ones. Justin... And, and sometimes me, I'm, I'm getting bad about it, but I'm going to get better. We uh, do blog posts and stuff that you can check out. So check us out at Across the Peak. We also have a store, man, if you want to get some Across the Peak swag. So with all that being said, until next time, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.
1: You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.